for a sort of like fail safe way to make sure that people can still get the care that they need. Like we are building infrastructure that would allow us to, you know, put in place a sort of like support line that people could call and say like, I need an abortion. This is like where I am in terms of my weeks of pregnancy. This is what I need help with, whether it's like financial care or child care or travel out of state to another state that has like less restrictions than we do. And our navigators will help you like on a case by case basis around like getting you whatever it is that you need to get an abortion. So just know that if you need help, help is there kind of no matter what. There are also like legal advocates here that are preparing to be able to take on any of these potential like lawsuit cases because you know if we do potentially in Tennessee move to a six-week ban instead you know we're going to see a rise in the amount of lawsuits or the amount of like people pressing charges against people who are suspected of like going above that six-week mark there are legal advocates who are like freeing themselves up who are ready to provide pro bono care who are ready to walk you through whatever it is that you need so just know that the resources are there if you need them I think now is a time where we see how a community comes together in response to this and so yeah my my lasting message to you all would be like the institutions were never going to save us at the end of the day we take care of each other and we will continue to do that no matter what the law looks like around abortion care you know we we are here and we will go above and beyond to make sure that you get what you need. This is Claire Rashado with KBFM, and you're listening to Row on the Rocks, a limited series podcast about what abortion access looked like in America while Roe was still the law of the land. Music in this episode is Ragtime by Peerless, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Tune in next Thursday at 9 a.m. to hear more. Howdy, everybody. I'm Rose Maddox, and I'd like to tell you that you're listening to KBOO in Portland, Oregon, the station that I listen to when I'm in the area. KBOO is proud to co-sponsor the Portland Folk Music Society concert series starting Saturday, September 17th, with singer-songwriter Tim Grimm. The folk music series of nine Saturday concerts starts September 17th and continues through May of 2023 at the Reedwood Friends Church on Southeast Steel. Season tickets are now available. Ticket information can be found at kboo.fm under Community Events.
Welcome to Beyond Your Front Door, your adventure guide to the Central Oregon coast. I'm your host, Dina Pavlis. I'm very pleased to be in the studio today with Jim Rice. Jim is the Stranding Program Manager with the Marine Mammal Institute at Oregon State University. He coordinates the Oregon Marine Mammal Stranding Network, and we'll be talking about what to do if you see a stranded animal here on the coast. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dina. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Before we begin, can you share a little bit about your background and how you became involved with the Oregon Marine Mammal Stranding Network? Yes. I began my career in the late 1980s as a marine mammal trainer, first working at an aquarium in Connecticut. And over time, I worked as a stranding response biologist at another aquarium, this one in Boston, where I spent about 10 years doing rescue and rehabilitation work with marine mammals as well as sea turtles and learning a lot about their biology and how to respond to strandings and how to conduct post-mortem examinations or necropsies as we call them. And I gained a lot of experience in that position. And then when I saw an opening for a position here at Oregon State University to lead the stranding network here in Oregon, I jumped at the opportunity and was lucky to be hired and I moved here with my family, and I've been here since 2005. That's wonderful. What is the purpose of the network? There are multiple purposes, I suppose, or objectives to the stranding network. First and foremost, it's to better understand the health issues that affect marine mammals, um, to understand the diseases that may cause mortalities or the things that humans might be doing to harm them, for instance, fishery interactions or trauma due to gunshot wounds or boat collisions, things of that sort. We also provide for the welfare of live animals to the extent that we're able to do so. And in many cases, this involves trying to reduce harassment that that can be caused by people or dogs uh, that approach marine mammals that come ashore. And we also have a program to disentangle marine mammals from marine gear, fishery gear, or marine debris that's in the water. And ultimately, our objective is to help better educate the general public about marine mammals that share the shore with them. Um, There are a lot of unsuspecting folks who go to the beach and don't necessarily expect to see a seal or sea lion resting on the beach. We spend a lot of time educating people about the needs that these animals have to come ashore to get rest and the legal uh, requirements to leave these animals alone and not to harass them. So you're with the Marine Mammal Institute at Oregon State University, and how does that fit in with the Oregon Marine Mammal Stranding Network? It's a little bit confusing. I am employed by Oregon State University, specifically in the Marine Mammal Institute, and my particular job function is to coordinate the Oregon Marine Mammal Stranding Network, as it were, which is really a loose affiliation of various stakeholders, if you will, people that have some interest in marine mammal strandings or are involved in some capacity, whether they realize it or not, (laughs) I would also point out. So I basically gather information from any sources that I can um, when I hear about a marine mammal that's on a beach, and it may involve an agency person who has jurisdiction over that area, or it may involve a state police trooper or a citizen volunteer, maybe somebody who's just a person living at their own home and has an interest in marine mammals, or it could be somebody who's part of a nonprofit organization um, like Coast Watch, the Oregon Shores uh, Conservation Coalition. So there are are lots of different players in the straining network. It's it's not a 
a formal organization, as it were. It, it's a loose affiliation of, of lots of different players. How can someone tell if an animal is stranded versus just resting on the beach, as you say? For example, I believe I heard that some seals and sea lions will rest on the beach or leave pups on the beach. That is absolutely true. And it can often be a judgment call to determine whether an animal is actually stranded or if it's just ashore getting some rest. Seals and sea lions come ashore to get rest as a matter of their normal biology. They need to get rest on a regular basis. And it often takes time to observe an animal that's assured to determine whether what it's doing is normal or abnormal behavior. In some cases, we can see that an animal is severely malnourished or emaciated, and that will tell us that it's likely quite sick. Or there may be a severe injury, maybe caused by a shark bite wound, which would obviously uh, tell us that it's stranded. But in many cases, if it's a live animal on the beach, it can be very difficult to determine, and it, it is a judgment call, and it often requires maybe waiting 24 hours or more before we can determine that the animal is, in fact, in distress. If an animal is dead, it is automatically defined as being stranded. But live animals are certainly a gray area that can be um, hard to determine sometimes. So if I'm on the beach and I see a seal or a sea lion and I'm not sure, should I call in a report? So, for example, should people always call in or are you suggesting people wait? I think it would be best if they called as soon as they see the animal. And that way we know that the animal is there on the beach. And if it's a busy area, we can try to get some volunteers out to post signs to alert people to give the animal some space and to not interact with it. It also begins a timeline from which we can then, you know, begin maybe a 24-hour watch over the animal and, and have that start point so we know how long the animal's actually been on the beach. And often an animal will remain on the beach for a couple tide cycles before they feel sufficiently rested to go back into the water. There are mitigating circumstances, too. There are um, some animals that will spend extended periods of time on the beach, even if they are healthy. And this would include elephant seals that go through what's called a catastrophic molt every year. They will come ashore and they will spend sometimes several weeks out of the water at a time going through the process of molting. So they will basically stop eating and they will metabolize their stored fat while they're on the beach and they will just lie there looking miserable <laughs> sometimes for close to a month at a time wow. while they go through this molting process and they are basically shedding their skin and their fur gradually so you'll see patches of missing skin and fur it's not like a snake that sheds its skin all in one fell swoop this is a process that takes weeks and it often will leave the animal with open sores and sometimes these sores will have pustules and it'll maybe appear that the animal is quite sick. But this is a normal process that all elephant seals go through once a year and they often do it on Oregon beaches. So we will often monitor elephant seals and post signs and try our best to keep people from interacting with them because any interactions you have with a seal that's on the beach is stressful to that animal and stress will compound whatever health issues they may be dealing with. And just like with people, chronic stress will have a negative effect on health. So we want to minimize stress whenever possible when there's marine mammals on the beach. That's fascinating. I actually never realized that they would come on the beach for so long and actually shed. Fascinating. How does someone call in a report? There are multiple ways to report strandings. 
probably the best number to give out is one that's given by NOAA Fisheries. NOAA Fisheries is the federal agency that oversees stranding networks all around the country. And they have set up a West Coast um, Marine Mammal Stranding Network hotline. And that number is 1-866-767-6114. And that way, if you happen to be anywhere on the West Coast and you call that number, they can alert the stranding response organization that's closest to the area from which the animal was, was sighted or reported from. I also have a hotline that I manage here within the part of the coast that I work with. So I basically respond to strandings from Tillamook down to the California border. So if people are reporting strandings within that area, they could call me directly on my cell phone. And that number is 541-270-6830. And people will often email me with stranding reports. And the best way to email stranding reports would be uh, the email address stranding at oregonstate.edu. So that would be stranding at oregonstate.edu. Okay, so let's just repeat those numbers for strandings anywhere on our coast. The number to call is 1-866-767-6114. And that alerts the NOAA Marine Mammal Stranding Network, and they'll notify the correct person here on the coast in whatever area it is. Correct, Jim? Correct, yeah. All right, and then if you do find something between Tillamook and the California border, that's Jim's area, and you can reach him at 541 541- Two seven zero six eight three zero, or you can email him at stranding at oregonstate.edu. And I think they can also text you at that number, correct, Jim? Because I think I've texted you photos before of dead sea lions. Yes, the phone number, the 541-270-6830, you can text to as well. And many people do report things by text too. However, if people are texting me, I just request that they give me some information about where the animal's located and a little bit of context. Sometimes people will just text me a picture. <laughs> yeah, and that's not super helpful. Yeah, I, I often have to get some more information than, than just a picture. But pictures are basically the hallmark of what I'm after when people report strandings to me. I can glean a great deal of information from pictures that people text me or email me, and they can immediately show me what they're seeing and what their concerns are. And in many cases, I can immediately get back to them and say, okay, this looks like a healthy harbor seal that's resting on the beach. Please just give it some space. Or I could say this animal certainly looks like it's quite ill and uh, we might need to, to do something about it. So that's a perfect segue, actually, into my next question, which is what type of information should people be prepared to share when they are calling in a report? Well, the location is paramount. I want to know as close to exactly where the animal is as possible. And many people now carry smartphones, and smartphones pretty much all have a GPS in them. So everybody who has a smartphone can pretty much figure out exactly where an animal is located. And if, if they're not quite familiar enough with their phone to be able to do that, if they can give me some geographic landmarks or street addresses or something, that's very helpful. Um, a description of what they're seeing is often helpful. That the animal is, is resting on its side or is sitting upright, if it alerts, if it's vocal, if there are signs of injury, if there are any tags or brands on the animal, that can be very useful information mm. as well. 
Um, there are state and federal agencies that will mark marine mammals with either a tag attached to one of their flippers or a brand that's sort of hot branded on their body like cattle are hot branded by ranchers. And these identifications are very useful for the agencies that provide these tags and marks on these animals to help them better understand where these animals travel to and where they're foraging and, you know, any follow-up information about the lives of these animals after they had been marked by those agencies. So that's all useful information. But basically, it's photographs showing the animal where it's located and any description of what the animal's doing. It's generally all I need. And I can often find more information. I can follow up with the caller or have a volunteer or maybe myself go out and investigate the animal in person. Now, it sounds like people should also call in dead marine mammals as well. What happens when someone calls in a dead marine mammal? Yes, we are certainly very interested in knowing about dead animals as well as live animals. The dead animals give us information. We basically will keep track of all marine mammal strandings, both live and dead, throughout the year on the Oregon coast. And we can compile those numbers and determine, you know, how many of each species are stranding and of which age class. And if we collect an animal for necropsy, for a postmortem examination, um, we can determine why it died and what diseases it may have had. So this is all very useful information. We will often collect animals that are freshly dead for necropsy. We'll take them off site and bring them to a lab, either here at the Hatfield Marine Science Center in Newport or sometimes to the College of Veterinary Medicine at Oregon State University in Corvallis. Or sometimes we will do a necropsy on the beach. Sometimes an animal is just too big to move or it's just not practical to get it off the beach. So we will often do a necropsy on the beach and um, sometimes bury the remains or sometimes if it's a very remote beach, we might leave the remains on the beach for scavengers to consume. There are lots of scavenging birds that depend on marine mammals for their survival. Turkey vultures and ravens, crows, bald eagles, as well as things like coyotes and foxes will consume these animals when they're on the beach and they're, they're a part of the ecology of, of, of the beach. So it is helpful to know about any of these animals and we can then determine uh, what level of response we're going to do based on the type of animal it is, the condition that it's in, and how free we happen to be to, to respond to that given animal. We get reports of upwards of 500 animals a year. Sometimes it's closer to six wow. or 700. So we have limited capacity to respond to every animal. We have to prioritize cases quite often. And in many cases, a stranding may be several hours away and it, it would involve an entire day to respond to. So that, that might be a lower priority unless it is of sufficient interest. Maybe it's a rare species or the circumstances of the stranding are, are significantly different than, than the norm. But we, we still want to know about all these cases so we can keep track of them and, and follow trends of strandings over time. So I think you raised a really good point, too, that sometimes it's important to leave the animals there because that is a huge food source for mm -hmm. the birds that are here. I remember we had, I, don't, I think it was a dead, I don't know if it was a, a small whale or mm -hmm. a sea lion quite uh, several years ago out on Baker Beach. And I happened to be out there with the Forest Service and there were bald eagles and turkey vultures and everybody mm -hmm. seemed to be getting a meal. Yes, it's remarkable. Sometimes if I do a new crepes on the beach in a place like Baker Beach, which is remote and, you know, there are not a lot of houses around there and no hotels or anything like that, it's a wild place, basically. And sometimes I will 
leave behind a carcass after I've necropsied it. And as I pull away, I will see the, <laughs> the hordes of these animals descend on these things and just devour them. And it's, it's really quite remarkable. And I've, you know, sometimes have dilemmas whether I want to actually take a carcass from these animals because they will often be working on it before I get there. And I sometimes feel guilty if I'm interrupting <laughs> their meal. But I try to put science first and uh, get my samples and then leave the rest for them. And there's usually enough to go around <laughs> yeah. for everybody. Well, which types of mammals are found or reported most often? Most of the reports I get involve seals and sea lions. They are the uh, most commonly stranded marine mammals that come ashore in Oregon. And California sea lions and harbor seals are the two species of pinnipeds. Pinnipeds are basically seals and sea lions. The two species that we most see are California sea lions and harbor seals. There are also other types of marine mammals that we get known as cetaceans or whales and dolphins and porpoises. And the most common of those types of animals that we get are harbor porpoises and gray whales. Hmm. Um, but by far, the, the majority of um, marine mammal strandings involve seals and sea lions. About 90% of them are seals and sea lions. Interesting. Well, you have talked about contacting volunteers to go out and either put signs up or check on the status of a stranded uh, marine mammal. And I'm wondering, how do volunteers get involved? Well, they often get involved by reporting strandings and expressing an interest to me or having some sense of participation and just the gratification of having helped an animal that's in distress or just preventing it from being harassed. That's what most volunteers do is they help prevent animals from being harassed. And this is most important during the spring and early summer when harbor seal pups are born on the Oregon coast. Harbor seal pups are generally born between May and June, and that's around the time that tourist season really starts to ramp up on the beaches as well. And it's quite common for a, a lone harbor seal pup to be seen on a beach. The mother seal will often be in the water swimming and hunting for fish. And the pup often comes ashore to get rest. It's not strong enough to stay in the water. It doesn't have the capacity to dive for long periods of time. It gets cold easily. So it needs a lot of time ashore. And people will often come upon these pups and think that it's been abandoned and it needs to be rescued, when in fact it really just needs to be left alone. So right. volunteers are, are extremely helpful <laughs> in posting signs and sometimes standing watch over the beach to help prevent the animals from being harassed by people and dogs. So often during the spring and summer months, I get interested people that are willing and able to become volunteers to help with seal pups in particular. I've also had people that are interested in necropsy. They will often come to me while I'm on the beach doing necropsy and express interest, or they'll say, oh, my daughter is really interested in this. Would she be able to help you, or could she observe you while you do this? And that's, you know, it just sort of grows organically, I guess, from the process of, of people observing a marine animal on the beach and wanting to be involved in some way. Right. Um, so people often come to me, basically, and express an interest. And I will sometimes hold volunteer recruiting sessions in different locations, usually in the winter and spring months. Sometimes those will they'll help gather new people into the fold. And that's sometimes in concert with some of the nonprofit organizations that we work with. I mentioned Coast Watch, which is part of the Oregon Shores Conservation Coalition. 
recently, I developed a relationship with Friends of Neatarts Bay, Watershed, Estuary, Beach, and Sea. And this is a citizen uh, group up in Neatarts Bay in Tillamook County. And these are engaged citizens who want to be strong stewards of the marine environment and the ocean shore. And working with organizations like these really helps me connect with people that have a passion for being outdoors and being on the beach and preserving marine life. People often come to me and sometimes I will help solicit them as well. But it, it, it all seems to sort of just grow organically, as I said. So, Jim, it looks like people can go to your website to find out more about the Oregon Marine Mammal Stranding Network. And I just want to confirm that address with you. I have mmi.oregonstate.edu slash O-M-M-S-N. Does that sound correct? Yes, that is it. Great. And if that's too much for people to write down, they can also just Google Oregon Marine Mammal Stranding Network, and that site is the first one on the list. Well, Jim, one of my favorite parts of this show is asking people to share a favorite memory or experience. And I'm wondering if you have a favorite memory or story related to your involvement with the network that you can share. Yes. I have several, but I, I can focus on one in particular. Um, this involved the rescue of an entangled stellar sea lion that was at Sea Lion Caves, just north of Florence, back in 2010. And this was a very unusual situation. This was a sub-adult female stellar sea lion in a giant sea cave along the Oregon coast. If you're not familiar with Sea Lion Caves, it's a remarkable natural place. Um, It's an enormous sea cave. I think it might be the largest sea cave in the world. And it's also a major haul out for stellar sea lions along the central Oregon coast. So you can have hundreds of stellar sea lions inside this cave during the winter months. Basically, they come ashore to rest inside this cave when the sea is is quite stormy often and, and the waves and such make hauling out on shore outside of the cave difficult. The, the cave provides some shelter to these animals. In any event, there was a sea lion that had been observed inside this cave that was trapped. It was pinned to a rock deep inside the cave mm. um, by a troll net that had it had been entangled in. So the net was wrapped tightly around its head and neck and shoulders, and the animal was basically pinned to this rock, likely for a day or two before it had been sighted and reported. And the animal was clearly not doing well. It was losing weight and it was becoming weak and it was unable to free itself. There was no way for it to return back to the water. It was not going to be able to forage or to to eat and it was likely going to starve to death if it just remained there in the cave. But this was basically a protected area. Sea Lion Caves is privately owned but the animals inside the cave are federally protected species. So gaining access to the cave and potentially disrupting this haul-out of hundreds of sea lions mm. could potentially be a violation of federal law and a dangerous endeavor. Yeah. Um, so I, I notified NOAA Fisheries, uh, which is a federal agency that oversees the enforcement of the Marine Mammal Protection Act and management of stellar sea lions in particular, and asked for permission to go inside the cave uh, with a team of people from the Marine Mammal Institute to try to rescue this animal. And lo and behold, they immediately said, sure, go ahead, just be safe. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized quickly that we had a lot of logistical things to determine and figure out, first of all, how to gain access inside the cave and get ourselves down in there. We 
basically had to use lights and ropes to lower ourselves down into the cave, and we needed to have some protection of ourselves uh, because the sea lions can be very aggressive, and um, we needed to have a veterinarian um, with us who could safely sedate the sea lion while we disentangled it. So I contacted a veterinarian with the College of Veterinary Medicine at Oregon State University, and we got a board-certified veterinary anesthesiologist to come down and help us. And we got a group of five or six of us to descend down into the cave, and with the help of this veterinarian and some good luck, I would say, we were able to approach the sea lion without disrupting lots of other sea lions in the process and without injuring ourselves and sedated the animal very lightly, removed the material from her, and she immediately bolted into the water and took oh. off. And that was just a very gratifying experience. It was just wonderful to feel that I was able to have a positive impact on the animal's welfare that way. And it really was surprising that we were able to go down into the cave and succeed in, in that endeavor um, as quickly and well as we did. So um, anyway, that's probably the most memorable experience that I can think of working here at the Oregon Reunion Stranding Network. That's such a great story. Elements of danger, elements of feeling successful, and then just like the heart part of feeling so happy that you were able to help her. That's fabulous. There was some media about this at the time, too. If you'd like a link to it, I could send it to you. Yeah, please send that because I'll share it on the social media at the time that we air this show so people can see what we were talking about. That'd be great. So, Jim, I just want to take a minute to let listeners know if they tuned in late, you've been listening to Beyond Your Front Door, produced for the Pacifica Radio Network in the studios of KXCR in beautiful downtown Florence, Oregon. I've been speaking with Jim Rice. Jim is the stranding manager with the Marine Mammal Institute at Oregon State University. Jim coordinates the Oregon Marine Mammal Stranding Network, which we've been discussing today. We've been talking about the marine mammals that are stranded on the beach and how to report them if you see them. If you missed any portion of this show, you can find the entire show on soundcloud.com. Just search for Beyond Your Front Door, Oregon, and look for the wave. So, Jim, we are just about out of time. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we wrap up? Well, I just want to thank you for having me on. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I guess the one take-home message that I'd like to reiterate is that if folks are visiting the coast, please be mindful that you are sharing the shore with wildlife that make the coast their home and to please be respectful of the needs these animals have to rest and to be left in peace. It's a hard lesson for some to hear. People don't like to be told not to do things, but it is extremely important for the welfare of the animals that do come ashore to not interact with them and to give them lots of space. That's my closing statement. Okay, well, it's a great closing statement. Jim, thank you so much for taking time to be here today. It's been really interesting and informative. Thank you so much for having me on your program. It's been a real pleasure for me, too. Missed a show recently? You can find all of our shows on SoundCloud.com. Just search for Beyond Your Front Door, Oregon, and look for The Wave. Have an idea for a show you would like to hear? Email me at dina at kxcr.net to share your idea. Thanks to Pacifica Radio member stations KBOO, KCEI, PNW Radio, and KXCR for airing Beyond Your Front Door. And thanks to organ-based Jumpin' the Rails for performing the theme song, Smith Chapel, used on this show. And thanks again to all of you for tuning in. I hope you have a great week and get some time beyond your front door.
You are listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM.